Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Hard Yards. It is episode 17 and I have to thank all of my listeners out there, particularly those of you who reach out to me through messages, through Instagram, through Twitter and saying how much you're enjoying the podcast. Please keep sharing it around and also let me know if you have someone you'd like me to have on the show and I'll do my very best to get them on. This week's guest sits on the other side of the white line or the boundary fence as he's been a huge part of cricket and rugby league writing over the years, predominantly for the Courier-Mail newspaper. In recent years, as news has transitioned from print media to digital media, media sorry, we have, been, we have seen him on Fox Sports, Queenslanders Only, The Back Page, and is also as the host of Cricket Legends. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest, Robert Craddock, or as some of you would know him, Crash Craddock. Welcome, Robert, and thanks for taking time out of your schedule to join me for a chat on the hard yards. I'm honoured to be on the show, Matt. I, uh, I love the thought of the hard yards podcast, and I, uh, it's just resilience, mate. It's missing in the modern world, I think, a bit, and uh, anything we can do to contribute is worthwhile. No, thank you so much, and I know you've, I know you've been on my one of my guest shows tonight, actually, on NRL three sixty with a uh, good mate of mine, Mister Iken, who was uh, one of our guests on the Hard Yards already. And uh, how was that, mate? Your uh, your first episode or, or your first venture onto NRL three sixty, I believe. How how did that go down tonight? I was a bit nervous, but <laughs> as I sat and looked at Ben Iken when he asked me about the future of Anthony Seabold as Broncos coach, I had to say to him, well, if you get the Broncos chief executive job then in October, that could be the biggest call of your working life in your first week of the job, Anthony Seabold's future. And Ben being very cool and relaxed, just sort of nodded, you know, and he's, uh, he's an incredible guy. He's uh, just about my favorite guy in rugby league. He's dignified by the last of hard questions. He's, uh, got great character as you know and uh he stands for something i think he'd be a great chief executive yeah i think he would be too and uh and i think it's like you say it's just such a i mean have you ever seen we might as well talk about this have you know just because we we got onto the topic but have you ever seen i mean you haven't uh none of us have ever seen the broncos in such a state uh in your time covering sport and you know, such an icon in Brisbane, isn't it? That the Brisbane Broncos brand. And boy, it's tough at the moment, isn't it? It is. There's been only four people have coached the Broncos and only one of those four, Wayne Bennett, has handled the pressure. Uh, it's searing. And I think when they interview for Broncos coaches, they rarely ask them about the, oh, how do you handle the pressure? And they, or if they do, and they nod their heads, yeah, you'll be right. Well, most of them aren't right. You know, it's searing. And it gets more intense by the year. I really believe that since the days when Wayne Bennett was ruling the roost, the temperature has risen with social media and instant feedback. And yeah, it's really brutal now. That's certainly something that you would have seen completely evolve over time uh, from when you started you know, way back when writing um, and covering sport to nowadays where it's almost like, I mean, I guess I'm doing a little bit here in my own way, aren't I? But um, with this podcast, but it's almost like anyone with a phone, with a computer can, can write articles that and put them out there somewhere or post a video on YouTube of them talking about the Brisbane Broncos. And, you know, it almost becomes this, um, 24 7 news cycle these days versus what i imagine would have been 
you know, a deadline to make tomorrow's newspaper back in the day. Yeah, well, you put it very well, Matt. And we still laugh about it in the office that back in the 1980s, you found out whether you were scooped by one of the Southern papers three days later. Like <laughs> if they beat you on a story on Tuesday, their Wednesday's paper would arrive Friday afternoon. And I can still remember, um, you know, looking through the files when they're opening the papers, when they arrived from Sydney and Melbourne and going, oh, they've got me. Oh, no. You know, I should have chased that up. And this is three days late. So that's what it was. But, Matt, it's really tough now for young journalists to get jobs. But the best parts of the industry are greater than ever. Like, I, I, once upon a time, only our racing writer, Bart Sinclair, was on television. And we used to gather around the box to see him on the Channel 10 News. Yeah, right. And we'd laugh hysterically at the fact that he was wearing makeup and, oh, there's Bart <laughs> on television. Like, it seemed like the Logie Awards to us, you know. Yeah. But now... We have two studios at work, and if you see one of your colleagues in the studio, you're looking up at the television, you see, oh, yeah, uh, one of uh, Peter Bedell's just gone down to the studio, he's on air now. It's just a accepted part of the industry. And I remember a couple of years ago, there was a bit of a blue in the office when one of the league writers put on a bit of a turn because, guess what? Someone stole his makeup. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, were, we were just laughing, like, the sort of thing that had never happened in the 1980s. Someone stole a rugby league writer's makeup before his television appearance. So <laughs> it's, it's changed. But you know what, Matt? I, I, I like it. I used to poke fun at television hosts, like, and say, oh, how lightweight are they? And then I had to host Queenslanders only, and I couldn't read an auto cue. So I've got great respect for all the people yeah. I used to take the mickey out of, like Ray Martin and Eddie Maguire. I'm telling you, they're great operators. Yeah, it's a, it's a much tougher gig when you put yourself in the chair, isn't it? Oh, it is, because there's so many... Just reading an auto cue, and Ian Healy used to say to me, when he was reading the news on Channel 9, that when Bruce Page said, and coming up after the break, heels with today's sport, Ian said that he could feel his heart beat through his jacket, <laughs> like it was beating so strongly. And I thought, oh, really? I mean, that's a bit melodramatic. That couldn't have happened. But you know what? Then I had to host Queenslanders Only for Fox Sports, a tiny little show. And then when the music was playing at the start of the show, my palms were sweating. Like, I was a mess. So I really get it. But that's the excitement. And that's the vibe and the challenge and the fun of the industry. It's great. Does that... Does, was um, the Legends show, Cricket Legends show... And Queenslanders only, was it? Was that sort of one take scenario? Yeah, it, it was sort of Queenslanders only because it was recorded. Sometimes I'd have to do the intro and Justin Hodges always used to try and distract me when the music was playing. <laughs> Sounds like Hodge, Yeah, they loved it when I stuffed up. So <laughs> I thought, I wonder whether they laugh about me behind the back and they realise I'm incompetent as a host. <laughs> and then one day I walked into uh, Kev. I saw Kev Walters at Paddington, and I said, "Kev, how are you?" And he turned around and said, "G'day, Blake. How are you?" <laughs> and I realised that they've nicknamed me One Take because I normally take seven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant stuff. Let's go back to the beginning um, for you. Talk me through, you know, because you've forged this career. 
Um, and it's still a blossoming career when I, when I watch, watch the, as I said, when I watch the, sh the TV and I pick up the newspaper, the Courier Mail, which is probably one of the very few publications of a newspaper still out there. But uh, I see your articles and I watch you on various different shows. But how did it all begin for you, uh, Robert, way back when? And, you know, what inspired you to become a sports journalist? Well, when I was in grade seven, we took a trip to the Courier Mail. I grew up in Caboolture. And I was just fascinated by the joint. And we went into the dark room and they put a, a white piece of cardboard into the liquid which develops paper. And a footballer came to life on the, on the little piece of cardboard. That's how they developed photos in those days. And it was yeah, a wow. guy called, they said, if you can tell me which footballer it is, you can get a copy of that print. And I said, that's Jerry Fitzpatrick from Valleys. I know him, I, I see him every week. And they said, okay, you can, we'll give you a copy. And um, when I worked at the Courier Mail 30 years later, when I first started, I went down deep into the bowels of the building and looked in Jerry Fitzpatrick's file. And guess what? I found the photo that I no touched way. as a 12 year old boy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but I, I, when I was at school, I thought I'd like to be a journalist. I'm not very intelligent. My marks aren't very good. So I went to Toowoomba to study. And I studied for a couple of years and I heard that there was a sports vacancy going and it was fun and to try and pester the chief of staff called Mel Russell. And this is what happened. I caught a bus in from out of town to see him one day and he was sick. I caught a bus in the next day and he was on strike. I caught a <laughs> bus in the next day and he was, it was his day off. So I thought, well, I'll, fate's telling me I, this job's not suited to me. So I give up. And then I thought, oh, I've just got to at least get rejected by this guy, even if I see him. So I went in the fourth day and he said, look, I can only give you three days. And I'm thinking three days, that's paradise. Yes. So Matt, like I'm not a very resilient character, but I often tell that stories to young kids as in, if you're going to get a job, whether it's as a golf professional or anything, you've got to do things you don't want to do. Don't just send resumes away, make it hard for them, turn up knock on the door, say you want to see someone, look him in the eye, you know, and if he's going to reject you, let him reject you, but do the hard things. And I think that particularly in a career like journalism, it's not like some careers where you can just study and float into a job. It rewards people who, with extreme effort, you have to go the extra yard. It's that competitive. And, you know, so yeah, it was an interesting time. And that's, so that's where it began. So you started working in Toowoomba three days. Yeah. And then the, the, this wonderful little paper started in Brisbane. Rupert Murdoch started a paper called the Daily Sun. And uh, it was, we were, it, we were such a tight knit team that in 1982, uh, all the boys 38 years later are still mates in the sports section. Yeah. Wow. Bernie, Bernie Pramberg, David Falkenmeyer, Bart Sinclair, Jim Tucker, and myself, we're, we're, we're really close still. We, 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 I deeply love those boys. We were a ragtag operation then, but we were taking on the Courier Mail, and we did so with enormous gusto. It was so much fun. Sometimes you got beaten. They had some really established names like Frank O'Callaghan and Laurie Kavanagh, but it was what newspapers should be, really tough, robust, competitive spirit. 
I, uh, I know Jim Tucker well, and of course, Bernie Pramberg's been a golf rider for many years. So um, I've known Bernie for, for a number of years as well. So it's fascinating to, to have you link those two guys or two of those guys that you mentioned um, in there and that I know those guys quite well and saw Jim actually out on the golf course a few weeks ago out at Gales having a hit. He was having a hit in the group, a couple in front of me and we wandered over to say good day as I was on one of the tees. So um, fantastic guys. When you that moved does... to, when you moved to Brisbane, so that was, when did, what year did you start doing your, your, um, what did you, year did you first get your first gig? Do you yeah, well, yeah, it was 1980 at Toowoomba, then 1982 when the sun started, and 1985 I switched to the Courier Mail. And okay. uh, it was, you know, I, I, it was such a big move for me. I, 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 I was totally confused whether I should stay with my mates at the sun or go to yes. the Courier Mail, and you won't believe what I did. I was walking down the main street of Caboolture, where mum and dad lived. And I thought I need some divine intervention. <laughs> so I walked into the local church. All right. Wow. And on the tabernacle, there was this big sign and you know what it said? New beginnings. And I thought that's a, that's the, 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 the Lord's telling me to take the punt, punt and go to take the job. So off I went to the Corium Mail. That's <laughs> awesome. Been there ever since. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I share, I'll share with you my little story on this, on this exact same thing. I was, I was, I had an opportunity to potentially move out of Indrapilly golf club and go and play on tour. And I was meeting with a guy that was maybe going to be able to give me that opportunity. And I had, I prepared a, I guess a, a sponsorship type proposal and uh, was on my way to meet him um, to, to give him that proposal. And this car cut across in front of me on the highway and, you know, I was doing a hundred Ks an hour and, you know, I, I, I jammed the brakes on as it jammed in front of me and on the back windscreen of, uh, or the back windscreen of his car was Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. Seize and, the day. Uh, and I'll <laughs> never forget it. And I, it just relaxed me so much that even though I'd, I'd screeched to a, you know, s save an accident, the mm. message was clear that it was about going and seizing the day a bit like what you had. So yeah, it's fantastic. Amazing story, Matt. It is yeah. amazing. The little pointers we get in life, mate. That, yeah, that it's awesome. Cool. It's awesome. So that was just behind. That was just after World Series cricket, um, mm. when you first started working in. And, and cricket's been your thing, I suppose. Is that safe to say? And and in rugby league, maybe a fraction later. Yeah. Look, I did them both uh, at the Courier Mail, but I ended up. I found that not a lot of people wanted to tour with cricket. It was a young man's game as far as touring. A lot of the married guys couldn't do it. Yep. So yep. off I went for about 15 years. And I basically did Shane Warne's career. If you think of Warney, yeah, right. his right. early tours, he turned up. On my first tour, Shane Warne turned up at the airport and forgot his passport and <laughs> had to rush home and get it. He made the plane by two minutes. He was just in stories all the time. And he was also on my, the last tour I ever did too. So uh, and it was just so much fun. Back in those days, Matt, if, I w if you wanted a story, you just rang Warney in the hotel. You just rang Stephen Moore, said, can I come to your room? Now it's all media managed. But back then it was really rough and raw, but very, very real. And you mixed in that bar with players. They told you things after stumps. And, you know, it was just a, 
you, you really felt you knew them. Like I, I, I yeah, feel sure. like, you know, I, I don't feel I covered Michael Clark's nearly his entire career. I don't feel I know him at all. You know, I just don't, but I feel I know Stephen Waugh and Adam Gilchrist and guys like that. So it, it's, um, yeah, they, they, they were great days for accessibility. You could write the little stories, Matt. You could get, I remember going into Stephen Moore's room and saying, well, who's that? He said, oh, that's a foster child I sponsor in Columbia. I keep her photo beside my bed. I, I think of her all the time. She's really, you know, and uh, I look after her and her family. I mean, that, that was, it was a lovely story to stumble upon. The little things you got, which you don't get today. Why do you think that is? Like today's well, I- today's world and, you know, because you would think that, you know, obviously there's a bit of a guardedness from, from, you know, whether it's cricket or rugby league or AFL or whatever sport to make sure mm-hmm. the players are uh, saying the right things. But you'd think in this modern time, they're more educated in how to deal with the media than ever before. They are. And that's the problem. Probably too educated. I mean, I think... Political correctness in some ways is, is great, but in other ways it does strangle character. I mean, and I think since social media come along and the audience has had a chance to answer back, everyone is so careful what they say. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons that I love Richie Benno's career so much is because he got out before the public had a chance to answer back. And that's how I want to remember him. Yeah. Whereas everyone on social media now gets really viciously attacked from jockeys having a ride. You know, they, they come in and their phones are buzzing with, mate, you're kidding. That was terrible. It really destroys some of these kids to rugby league players after Broncos games, you know, they turn on their phones and you can just see their faces melt and go to custard. So it's a difficult world, Matt. And I think mm. you've got to be a tough man to uh, sort of survive and thrive in professional sport these days. I think it's, it's a, I, I'm with you, I think a little bit. I think it's a massive shame in that, you know, when you, you know, were able to do what you used to be able to do and, I think that's what I love about this podcast so far is that, you know, some of the feedback I've had from people regarding, you know, the, the chats, the literally the, just the chat that I'm having. And, and Adam Scott was a great example of that. The amount of people who messaged me afterwards because Adam was the most relaxed, even the most relaxed I've ever encountered Adam having known him for a very, very long time. But my, you know, whenever I caught up with Adam, it was usually at a tournament. So he's in tournament mode and, you know, he's in that sort of semi, you know, guarded state as well, I suppose. But he was so relaxed on this podcast forum that, you know, the feedback I got was just, oh my gosh, that was so great to just see Adam and see him in a different way. And I, I liked him, but now I really love him, you know, and I yeah. think we miss that, you know, we miss mm-hmm. that about the modern athlete, what you, you know, spoke about with Steve War and Warney and, those guys and the characters that they are, we just don't get to see or feel or fall in love with them as much. I feel like Robert. No, you're right. And I think that there are less, I mean, you know, there's less sort of, um, you know, sportsmen when big money came into sport, it all changed, Matt. There's no question about that. Yeah. And I can see why it changed. I mean, if you're playing a round of of, uh, cards with your mates and it's $2 a hand, you're laughing and joking and, and and gossiping and quipping and all that. If you're playing with your mates and it's $200 a hand, 
Well, there's mm. not much chatter there, mate, going on. No. It? It's a very serious business. And I, I saw the change in cricket. I really did. They used to have roommates in cricket until about 1995, and it was great. You'd go into Shane Warne and Tim May's room, and they'd both be smoking. Uh, you know, you'd go into, uh, you know, Darren Lehman's room, and they'd be playing cards and that. And, you know, that, that, but, but then it became, you know, by themselves and then much more serious. But you're right, and it's not coming back. There's still colour there, but it, but it is harder to find. You're 100% right. But I think you got Adam Scott at a really good time, and that's the skill of interviewing, which I think you've got, relaxing people. Just Michael Parkinson, before I did Cricket Legends, he used a little trick. <laughs> I'll tell you what it was. He turned up to interviews wearing a tie every time. And then when he was in the interview room, he would take off his tie and throw it on the, on the bench yeah, or great. on a chair and say, I'm not wearing the tie today. Not for you and me, mate. We'll just kick it around. And they'd go, yeah, yeah, we'll just kick it around. Yeah, we yeah, just relax. Sort of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was a trick that he used to relax. Or he did it just show after show. And, and that's how they were so relaxed because he'd rip the tie off and theatrically throw it and say, oh, mate, not today. Not, not for us. And they'd go, no, not for us. No, we're more, much more. And so I just thought he's a genius, you know. He's really, yeah. really wonderful. Mm. I think that's challenging, I'm sure, in your field. So my field of, you know, this certainly in this podcast and, you know, post my playing career and moving, wanting to move sort of down this path and do a little bit more of this sort of thing. I guess for me, I've got a, you know, I've, I've known or played golf with all of my guests so far and yourself. Uh, we haven't played golf, but I've taught your son. Yeah. And, uh, very and well. so we have a relationship through that as well. And I think I'm in a, I'm in a quite an end advantageous position because of that personal um, friendship through playing golf together with people. Whereas for yourself and the journeys out there coming through, that's got to be one of the hardest parts of the job nowadays is they just can't really get alongside or get as close as what you did when you're describing, you know, what those rooms and the cricketing tours were like. Mm. It, it's a good point. And the key is I don't try to, you know, yeah. Um, there was one cricketer at my wedding and he was 84 years old, <laughs> Phil <laughs> Brown, the ex-test oh, test yes. batsman. Wow. But there was no, um, like, I, I don't pretend that I'm friends with the cricketers or the sportsmen. Look, sure, th th there's a couple that, I, that you do become friends with because I wrote the books of Ian Healy and Matthew Hayden and you can't write a book without someone without becoming friendly with them. And, and doing 30 hours of interviews, it, it's a bond for life. It really is. For I sure. can't deny that. But generally speaking, I, I keep my distance almost intentionally, you know, and uh, because it makes it too hard if you're mates with the players. I've ne it always worries me when I hear a journal say, oh, look, I'm really good mates with Tavita Pangai or someone like that. I don't consider that a badge of, of respect, you know, because if you're mates with him, how are you going to write fairly about him yeah, you that's, know, when that's he plays what, up? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And I, I'd written that down here, how, how difficult is it to conduct those post-game, post-match, post-day interviews or be one of the journalists in the room and ask those tough questions, Robert? Mm. I, yeah, it, it's hard. I'm not a, I'm not a great quest, tough question asker. Um, 
you know, it, it's, I try sometimes, but it doesn't happen naturally. And I stutter and I stum, stum, <laughs> stammer, <I> lose <laughs> confidence quickly. And so you've got to be emboldened or, or try to be bold, but it's not easy. Some guys are better at it than others. And I also think, too, sometimes you catch more flies with honey. Uh, before I did the Cricket Legend show, a guy, Mike Sheehan, who does open mic, I rang for him sure. up for advice. Fantastic. And he said to me, look, sometimes you can catch more flies with honey. He said, Everyone's, everyone tries to be the hero by asking the damn busting question and raising their voice. He said, oh, I go the opposite way. I ask, deliberately ask the hard questions with a softer voice. And he said, you'll be surprised how guys open up. And there's other little interviewing tricks. Um, John McCoy always used to get good information out of Wayne Bennett. And you know how he did it? A little secret trick. Um, Wayne, he'd say, uh, were you annoyed that um, uh, Brian Niebling isn't in the Australian team? A little bit. That'd be Wayne's <laughs> reply. And John would just stand there with his microphone and don't move. And eventually he would flush Wayne out. The, the sound of silence would intimidate Wayne. And after about five seconds, he'd go, well, off the form he's in, he should be in there. I think it's terrible. You know, so it, it was a very clever, clever work by Macca. He flushed out the great Bennett's by just by stare. And it was just basically a stare off between them. He'd just stand there totally motionless with his microphone under Bennett's chin. And eventually Wayne cracked. Oh, it was fabulous entertainment. Oh, that's brilliant. I think that's a, that's a sales technique too, isn't it? You know, when the salesman's trying to sell you something and he gives you the, the price and it's, I mean, we were taught that in gyms when we were selling gym memberships that, you know, when you deliver the price, you be quiet and the first yeah. one to talk buys, you know? So <laughs> if I talk again first, then usually they won't buy. If they talk, they'll buy. So it's yeah, um, yeah it's fascinating to hear it used in different industries with, with the cricketing on the cricketing front, and touring with the team, as you said, what was, you know, what was maybe one of the best, like is, I can imagine the Ashes tour in, in England would be one of the great tours, but did you travel to India as well? Is that tough yeah. or is that just uh, an eye-opening experience? Talk, talk us through a couple of the, the different ends of the spectrum as far as touring with the Australian cricket side. India was the toughest tour, and it was funny. I, I related a little bit like childbirth, even though I've never been a mum. But they always <laughs> say when w women have uh, a child, it's the hardest pain they go through and the easiest to forget. I did yep. four test tours of India, and each time when we're on the plane flying out, I waved to India saying, thank you, but I'll never be back. You're too tough for me. Yeah, and wow. do you know what? What was four tough years, about it? Oh, just everything. Everything, just, just the phone lines would struggle, uh, the heat and, and the hotels. But it's really changed. But you know what? I fell in love with the place so much. Four times, that four years later after between the tours, and I said, who wants to go to India? I'd say, me. And, you know, I just love the place, the mystery of the place. You know, the, yeah. the heat, the humidity, the fact that everyone did their best. And, and I, I, I love the charm of the place. It's just... Cricket breathes in India. And yeah, it's I was going to say, because cricket is just manic in that country. Well, I think so as a 81... cricket rider, it's, it oh. seems like it would be amazing to be there. Oh, it, it, it is. And, you know, like I love watching, the, you know, there's cricket in the streets and, and there's yeah. cricket 
you know, they, there's five games overlapping on the local park where they, you know, <laughs> a ball from one ground filters onto a ball in the other because they haven't got a big enough ground or maidans, as they're called, to, to, to have full boundaries. So it, it, it's a wonderful place. And I think that I'd love watching the development of India, Indian cricket. When they first came to Australia, we often tell the story that in the 1950s, a, a cricket writer was jogging under the Story Bridge on a Friday afternoon called Ian McDonald. And he thought, gosh, I haven't got a story for Sunday. And he found four of the Indian cricket team fishing for eels under the Story Bridge. <laughs> and, and he asked them, what are you doing? They said, our touring allowance has run out. So we're trying to catch dinner. So there was his story. I mean, what a story. Now, they, they've come, it is. And they've come from that to be the richest cricketing nation on earth. And their self-esteem has, has risen with the technological revolution. The early Indian teams came to Australia and they wouldn't look you in the eye at the press conference. They'd look down at their hands all the time. Yeah, wow. Now they're so confident. I mean, I remember going to a test in Bangalore and I saw this guy walk in and he sat across from me at the lunch table. And you, you know when you know someone's important because he's got three or four people around him? And um, I said to him, what, what do you do, mate? And he said, oh, I'm in technology. I said, what, what role? He said, I invented Hotmail, you know, and he did. I looked him up, you know, the inventor of Hotmails from Bangalore, and he sat next to me at lunch. I mean, the guy was probably worth X billion or something, but this is the modern India, the modern confident India, the Virat Kohli India. You know, yeah. it's just, they, they don't look, just look you in the eye. They look straight through you with a searing glaze. It's, 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 it's great. He's he's definitely that way, isn't he, Virat Kohli? Oh, he, well, he is modern India. Fearless, uh, take you down, look in the eye, energetic, restless, confident. See, see, Sachin Tendulkar was a great, great, great batsman, but in no one ever got to know him. He was very reclusive. He yes. did an Australia, entire Australian test tour without doing one press conference. I mean, that's like Roger Federer coming to Australia for three tournaments and not speaking to the media. Like, it's extraordinary. Whereas yeah. Virat Kohli, is a, he's, very, he's a commanding presence at a press conference. He'll look you in the eye. He'll make a strong opinion. He walks quickly. He talks quickly. He's a strong, commanding man in every respect. Fascinating. I think it's fascinating. You were mentioning before about the, the, the cricket fields. I'm not sure where I read it, but um, the Indian bowler at the moment, Bumrah, who yes, yes. has a, a very small run-up into mm. his bowling action. He sort of takes a couple of walk steps and then gets into a stride and, and bowls exceptionally well. But I read recently that that was born out of the fact that the alley he played his cricket in as a kid was so short, there was no run-up space, that he yeah. had to push off the back wall and... <laughs> had a couple of steps and then had to deliver the ball. I mean, that's just fascinating. I, I just think there'd be so many of those sorts of stories as a, as a writer to be able to encapsulate from India. What about oh, England? Yeah. What about England going to an Ashes series, you know, um, and well, what's that like as an Australian journalist in England mm, during an Ashes series? Yeah, it's a great, and just before we get on that, it is a great story, Jasper Bulma, and you're 100% right, Matt. And the other story about him is, he used to bowl indoors and be able to hit the area where the wall hits the floor. At, with a, <laughs> he, that, that, that's how he perfected his Yorker, by bowling yeah, wow. it. 
he could hit the wall and the floor at the same time, that little corner, and the ball would bounce back up to him, so he knew it was perfect. But just <laughs> on England, oh, That's you, awesome. you know, England really, truly is the home of cricket, and it's just got a beautiful vibe about it, the whole place, because the grounds are small. You know, they might fit 20,000 people. You feel as if the crowd is... It's small, but you know what? It seems big. It seems all around you. And there's a majesty about English cricket because in three and a half hours or so, you can go from one end of the country to the other. But guess what? There's seeming wickets. There's bouncing wickets like the Oval. There's spinning wickets like Nottinghamshire. So it's just... And every place has got a souvenir shop which says their home team ties are on sale and Worcestershire's got the cake shop, which uh, is inside the ground, and you can go there and buy something. So, it's a uh, England and, and little village cricket too in England is is just wonderful. It's just you know, guys been playing for the same club for forty years, and they play on a Saturday afternoon in front of just ten fans, and you know, people from the local butcher shop calling in. It, it's just it, it's charming. It, it's just charming. It's it's quite cultural cricket, isn't it? You know, I yeah. think when you when you become a part of a cricket club, you know, you you know, you you end up playing club cricket for that. You know, Jeff Wilson, uh, dual international, all black and black cap, I suppose, um, mm. was telling me the same thing. He said, over there, once you're when you're at a cricket club, that's your cricket club. Yeah, yeah, that that's right, and. and- you know, I, there's little clubs that uh, Shield Berry, the, the famous cricket writer from the Telegraph, I played for his club, Hinton Charterhouse. And I played from 15 years apart. And, you know, yeah, it's wow. quite ex- extraordinarily, I reckon in the 11 players, nine of them were still the same. Yeah, and <laughs> That's I, incredible. And, and when I said to Shield, made that point, he looked at me in bewilderment and said, no one ever leaves Hinton Charterhouse. So... You're right. It's a very it's that sort of game, and there's villages and teams like that all over England. Given that that's how cricket is, and your involvement with cricket and cricket riding in Australia and travelling with, I'm assuming you kind of travelled separately, but sort of with the team. How did that sort of play out? And I've got another question that I'm building into here, but I'd rather I'd like to hear that part of it as well. So, as a cricket journalist, did you? Do you have to do your own thing travel-wise or do you get linked in with Cricket Australia? No, we generally do our own thing travel-wise, but we often stay at the same team. Well, we used to stay at the same team hotel. That can lead to embarrassing moments, and I'll give you one. (laughs) (laughs) Back in a tour of India, I remember we stayed at the same uh, resort as the Australian team. And at a little bungalow, right in the corner of the compound, it was 100 metres away from everywhere, everywhere else. There was, it's segregated into two, two sort of uh, little units. And I was in one and Steve Wall was in the other. And the walls were so thin that uh, we just saw a lot of each other. And it was quite awkward. And it was going through a stage where he was out of form and I was bagging him in print. And to get the internet on, you had to call up Australian players. You could get it on the internet after about 10 o'clock at night. So I would be lying in bed with my head on the pillow. And remember that old sound you used to get when you were getting the internet? You'd yeah. go, bing, bing, boom. <laughs> yeah. and, 
And I would hear that sound of Steve linking on, up to the internet. He would go straight to the cricket story. I could hear it through the thin wall and then he would, he would look at it and I just had to pull the, pull the uh, pillows over my head. I couldn't stand the pressure of bagging Steve Wall when he was in the next room. But oh, that's I'll never brutal. forget that. Yeah, it was. But and plenty of times you're going down the... I had a great mate, Malcolm Connor, worked for the Australian. He was incredibly brave. If he wrote a story criticising someone, he always went to breakfast the next morning as if to say, I'm not hiding from anyone. Here I am. If you want to take me on, take me on. I wish I was that brave, Matt. I was the sort of bloke to order room service and hide <laughs> away. <laughs> but it's a tough part of the gig, right? Because, and oh, yeah. I guess they kind of, oh, I guess athletes kind of know that it's a part of their job too, you know, that, that you know, if they're not performing, that yeah. it's going to be written about. Oh, yeah. Well, some handle it better than others, you know. and For sure. Uh, you know, I, I, look, just running through some of the blokes, Matthew Hayden had a beautiful attitude towards it. He said, I don't want to read the press when I go really badly or really well. He said, because when I go really well, I find that it just goes to my head and I just, I, I carried away. He said, when I go badly, I just, you don't need to be told to go badly. He said, I know that. So yeah, there are plenty of journalists to bag Matthew Hayden that just couldn't believe how they could be critical of him in print. And then he'd come up and say, G'day, oh, mate, how are you? How's the family? <laughs> he and never I read it. To, well, it, and that only made him feel more terrible, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, but it's amazing the little, the little side issues. Like, I had this theory that Darren Lehman for a while wasn't a test cricketer. And the more I said that, the nicer he was to me. Like, he'd say, I just want you to know <laughs> honestly have your opinion because you know you're entitled to it don't feel awkward about it and the nicer he was the worse i felt <laughs> yeah uh it's almost uh you, you know it's almost reverse psychology isn't it oh well well it is and and, and that's what i say to, to young sportsmen now is you know be you know that the worst thing you could do to someone who bags them who bags you is be really nice to him because it makes him feel categorically terrible. Like there's been some really nice guys playing cricket, like Michael Kasperwitz, the fast bowler. Oh, yeah. When you were criticizing Casper, I swear to you, the words that you're typing slowed down, Matt, <laughs> the words came out really slowly. It was hard to do because he was just such a nice guy. Yeah. You know? I guess there's probably the other side of the coin too on that front where you might have found some players over the years that, you know, it was a bit easier to do that, you know, to write those articles about from the other side of the coin, not necessarily the nicest guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, uh, you know, there was some, there's been a lot of villains over the years, whether it be Willie Mason in rugby league mm. or, uh, you know, Kirtley Ambrose at times is a yeah, bit nasty sure. off the field to Australian press. Um, you know, uh, there was, there's just, you know, the games tosses up a, a lot of villains. I mean, that's, that's what sport's all about. And, uh, I certainly fell out, had arguments with a lot of cricketers yeah. and, uh, sometimes I was in the wrong. I just yeah. categorically got it wrong. And, yeah. uh, you have to admit that. And other times you stand your digs and say, look, I wrote what I wrote and, and I, I believe it to be true. So, Mm. But it is, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty turbulent old life. Yeah, absolutely. What about, um, this just popped into my head, Robert. Did, did you ever, 
Is there ever a time when you were oh, potentially asked to write a, a type of article to help build a player or, you know, does, does, does that ever happen? Um, I remember one time that uh, the, sometimes the opposite. Um, yeah, Wayne right. Bennett. Yeah, I remember Wayne Bennett was really worried when Alan Langer came into the State of Origin team. When he called him back from the UK? Yeah, no, before that, when he first started out, Wayne felt right. Alfie Langer was too small. Yeah. And, and he, just, he just said, look, guys, don't build him up too much because I think he's going to struggle. I remember that. And, and Wayne laughs at himself about it now because they're yeah. great mates, those two. Yeah. And Alfie's still one of these guys who can take the mickey out of Wayne, which he does regularly. You know, yeah. he, he just rings him up and stirs him up. But, but that was one example of that. I, I mean, I've had player managers on the phone and said, you know, try to pump up my man or whatever. And I, yeah. just, uh, you know, I always ignore vested interest. You know, I've had people ringing up and saying that you were far, far too hard criticising and, and, and you don't understand what it's like to be, you know, a family member of someone who's criticised. And look, it's, it's interesting. It's, um, yeah, but I, sure. I, I just think so long as you're fair, yeah. If, if, if you're fair about it, it's very hard of them to be truly critical of you. If you, if you try and uh, just be as honest as you can and as fair as you can, really, what can they say? Uh, I mean, you feel if you're standing on solid ground, you should be able to stand firmly. I think the, my golf coach once said to me, or maybe even my sports psychologist once said to me, facts, not feelings. And yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's a great comment, you know, and it was a comment directed to me. And when I'm playing golf, deal with facts only. Don't put feelings into it. Don't, you know, berate yourself when you're playing and call yourself every name under the sun. Um, just deal with the facts. Are The facts, the ball went in the right rough. You know, you don't have to give yourself, um, you know, a hundred nil to, to why you hit it there. So I, I guess that, probably rings true a little bit is what you're talking about there. If you're dealing with facts and fairness, then, you know, it's probably the way to go. Well, I, I went through a period where at the start of my career, I, I went about six years without writing any form of comment story. Like I just stuck right. to the fact. Yeah. And then my mate, Jim Tucker said, you'll just go through a period where you realize actually I've got an opinion on that. And, and you, you, your knowledge grows. Sure. And, so I, I displayed more opinions in the stories. I thought newspapers have got to be a bit broader than just the facts, so I'll have an opinion. But there's another saying too, that as soon as you think your opinion is really worth a lot, it's worth nothing. Like sometimes you, yeah. people get run away with opinions. You know, the yes. facts are still, still the, best, the best way to tell a story. Yeah, that's awesome. Talk to me about, you know, given your history with cricket and in Australia and, and around the world and traveling with the Australian cricket side, what was your take on South Africa and obviously the, the ball tampering issues that, mm. that came up and, you know, can you talk us through that time as a journalist in, in how that, where were you, how did that break to you and, you know, um, the difficulties of, of that time in Australian sport, really. Mm. I saw the ball tampering issue live on television and I was really surprised how advanced the commentators were in their knowledge of it. Like yeah, as, wow. soon as, 
as soon as the green slip of sandpaper was visible, they said, ho, he, ha, ho. Like they, they were, and I was thinking, hang on, that could be anything. But yeah. they've been so vigilant with the cameraman over the last few days. They knew exactly what they were doing and they were onto them and they got them. I just felt that the two-year penalties uh, for Steve Smith in terms of leadership and the one-year bans to Cameron Bancroft, David Warner and Smith, they were, they were justified because they had to crack a culture. You cannot take hardware onto a cricket field. People were saying, oh, yes, but sometimes they use uh, mints and saliva. Isn't that ba as bad? No, it's not as bad. Because here's the thing. You're allowed to use saliva on a cricket ball mm. and you're allowed to chew mints. There's a grey area there. There's no grey area in taking sandpaper on a cricket field. Yeah. It is a heinous piece of work. And I just think that they got what they deserved. And um, it was a culture that had to be cracked. And when you're cracking a culture, Matt, you've got to come down hard. Often the first crackdown is the biggest and the strongest, and it might seem a too big a whack, but yeah. it was justified. And Australia is a better team for what happened in that test because they've, they've cleaned out this rotten culture which was building up. I, I firmly believe that more players knew about that than the three who were convicted for it. How many knew? I, I do not know, but certainly more than, than those three that, that copped the blame and copped the bans. Uh, it was tough for them. Um, I walked in, it happened on a Saturday night. I walked into work on a Sunday morning and there was a guy outside who was a cricket coach, a junior cricket coach, and he came up and he wanted to register his displeasure and he was almost in tears. Yeah, wow. I, I saw our lady who was doing the letters to the editor on the Sunday and she said to me, my goodness me, this is a tsunami. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, our system's almost gone into meltdown by people protesting over this ball tampering affair. Um, average cricket stories will normally have about 2,000 people reading them. If you wrote a story on the ball tampering, the average audience was 120,000. Wow. That, that, that's 60 times the normal amount. So um, that, that's how big it was. People were appalled by it, and so they should be. But we're all about rehabilitation in sport. Um, to see Smith and Warner back is a good thing. I'm not mm. sure that Bancroft will ever come back to be the player he was. I must say, I didn't like his attitude. Um, he gave a press conference when he got home to Australia and he said, the thing that really, really annoys me out of this, everyone said, what's that, Cam? And he said, I've given someone else a chance to take my spot. And I thought, man, oh man, you don't get it, mate, do you? I mean, this, mm. this issue is so much bigger than you and your spot. Yeah. Were you privy, you, you mentioned about the culture there and the clean out of the culture of the Australian cricket side. Given how closely you have been over your, you know, your writing career with cricket and mm. we, were you privy to that? Like, did you, were you aware of this cultural slide? It's a great question. And I would say in part, but what I wasn't aware of was the actual ball tampering and the sandpaper. Like, although yeah, sure. uh, I understand it only happened in South Africa, but it happened in more than one test. I mean, yeah, wow. sometimes things shock you. Like, um, we also covered the most distressing thing that happened in my time in cricket was match fixing. And uh, that story broke in 1995. Mm. 
and 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 it's still running 25 years later and Amazing. I, we don't realize how far the game was on its knees Matt, if you and I could sit in a room and behind us there was a whiteboard with every match-fixing transaction uh, that's ever happened, and they said, okay, gentlemen, you can view it by turning around now, you would look, our jaws would hit the floor. I mean, it was everywhere, players taking money for information and dodgy wow. deals. And I mean, it was, it was you know, the, the, around the turn of the century, I promise you, the game was on its knees. Wow. It's incredible, isn't it? When you hear the stories of it, and obviously I've read it, and and the 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 depths of you know um, communications and guys on laptops and all the rest of it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's well. I'm glad that I'm glad that it's no longer on its knees or that it's looking like it. I mean, it's fascinating as well. The whole the ball tampering thing that we were talking about in that with COVID coming along and hitting our world this year now no one's even allowed to lick the ball so that takes away the lolly component as well <laughs> it does it does and um you know they can still use sweat but they're yes. not allowed to use saliva yeah. and uh, the ball's still swinging so it just yep. goes to show that uh, you can still take wickets that's for sure mind you it's most of the cricket that's been played is has been in england by a couple of masters of swinging that ball in in uh, in those english bowlers Broad and uh, Jimmy and yes, so I think they could swing anything. Those yeah. two guys. What about from a rugby league perspective? What's you know what's been the? Um, I mean, I reckon right now it's one of the biggest stories going around in a long time in my my recollection of rugby league uh, with the Broncos since they came into the competition in '88. This it's every single day in the newspaper, isn't it? It is. It, look, it's an interesting study, I have to say. Um, I've always had a pet theory that the least experienced a team is, the more experienced they need a coach. And uh, also vice versa, um, such as when the South's team was really experienced in 2018, they went well under inexperienced coach Anthony Seabold because they got all these game plans. But I think a really young team like the Broncos has struggled. But the, the, young teams need a simple game plan. They just mm. haven't got the mental capacity to think under pressure for plan A, B, C, D and E. You've just got to be plan A with the young team. And I think that's where Anthony, as hardworking as he is, as well-meaning as he is and as knowledgeable as he is, but that was the disconnection right there. It was just too complex for them. Wayne Bennett? By contrast, never burdens a player with more than two or three instructions. And that works for him. So it's, uh, look, it's a complex story. But I think all the young Broncos players, a lot of them were graduates from, you know, really starry schoolboy teams and underage teams that beat everyone. They're not used to this sort of scrutiny and they're not used to losing. And they haven't got that resilience, that hard shell. Mm. And then there's, as we spoke about earlier, the the digital component of of life nowadays for them, mm. as you know, modern day, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, uh, oh yeah, generation it, that they all are. Yeah, you know, they're living through that nightmare as well at the moment. Well, well, you look at it this way, Matt. See, 
they can't go out in the town and have a beer because someone gets a photo of them and they're gone. So they retreat to their private world. Now, what's the first thing they do in their private world? They switch their phone on. Then they look at social media and that hurts them. Can they escape then? No, they can't. They yeah. Because th th there's nowhere to go. So the isolation, I think, is really hurting them. And I think it really hurt Anthony Siebold because he's a structured man. He's a disciplined man. But he's also, uh, and the COVID world was just madness. Like training sessions disrupted, no sure. weeks the same, no days the same. So someone with super structures like him uh, was always going to struggle. But I've always loved rugby league. Back in the 1980s, when there were such great characters running around for souths and valleys. And, yeah. oh, man, oh, man, they were, they were great days. And one of my favourite quotes from all time is a rugby league quote from former South coach Bob McCarthy. Now, uh, you know, a Rabbitohs great, of course. But uh, he had Phil Cass, the magician, on the wing. And Phil was well-known as one of Brisbane's leading magicians. You know, he, uh, <laughs> you know, he famous for magic acts and, you, yeah, well. you know, he did a million corporate gigs. And he was also a winger for South. But he had uh, slippery hands. And I still remember asking Bob McCarthy once, um, how's Phil Casco? He said, I oh, don't talk to you about Phil. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you explain it to me. The guy can pull a rabbit out of his backside, but he can't catch a football. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just thought that was a terrific quote. Oh, I'll never forget it. Yeah, yeah. I still, still think of it. Every time I see uh, Phil Casco, I think of that. Blake can pull a rabbit out of his backside, but can't catch a football. Go figure. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, so good. What about... Is there any whispers within the, you know, the media and the, you know, the, the rugby league riders out there at the moment about, you know, I think looking at teams across the board at the moment, if we pulled up the, the list of players who are not playing football through injury, is there any attribute, anyone attributing that to, to the rule change and to the six again rules and the set restart rules? you know, in that the game never stops. And so it's causing more of these injuries. And I can't remember a season where there's more players on the sideline. I just, it's a good point. And I'm sure that the restarts have had something to do with it. But also the lack of, uh, when the season stopped after round two, it had a break of several months. Some players worked harder than others, but everything was muddled. Sure. So it was basically the start of a new season when they restarted and it wasn't a new season, you know? So a lot of them didn't do a proper pre-season. I think that's really hurt them. One thing I have to say, Matt, uh, it, it, this is a boring topic for a lot of people, but if you said to me, what is the most underestimated factor in the success of a footballer? I know it's boring, but if you don't get a decent pre-season, you done your struggle. It, it just, it will happen. You know, like you, you will struggle at some point. Footballers go on and on and on about it. I had a good preseason, but it does matter. It really, really does. I felt another underestimated factor in the Broncos' demise, perversely, was they won their first two games before the COVID shutdown. Mm. I think they would have been much better losing them. I really do. Like the Sydney Roosters, because it would have been the lightning bolt they needed. They went in to that break very, very, very comfortable with themselves. Mm. And far too comfortable because they said, yeah, we're third favourites to win it. We've just won two out of two. You know, that. how good's that? 
and then they've come out of it in no shape at all, and they've been flogged, in, you know, in, in so many games. It possibly points to your issue about, you know, potentially about the coaching and the youth of the coaching in mm. the Broncos at the moment, that that could be let happen, you know, mm. you know, because... But I also, I've also thought about it as a Broncos tragic fan that I am, that, you know, I wonder what would have happened and how we'd be sitting right now had COVID not happened and the season had have rolled on from mm. round two, you know, when a confident football team has won the first two games, two tough games, and uh, they're rolling into round three with those two wins under the belt straight away. Yeah, look, it is a good point. Without rule they, change too. Without, I mean, I don't think they're changing the, the six again rule if the season just rolled on. No, that's right. That's right. And I think the six again rule really caught the Broncos unawares. There's no doubt that they're lumbering forwards. Like For sure. Matt Lodge really struggled with it. But because it's just... It's what we said about young teams just need a plan A. You just mm. let them go. They're not smart enough to be adaptable. The old teams, just, that's why Anthony Seabold, when he had uh, a whole heap of older players like Sam Burgess and Greg Sutton. Inglis and Sutton and Walker, hey, they love the game plan. They love the stimulus of it. And they'll embrace mm. it. But with a group of kids, average age about 21, no, no chance. He had to really simplify it. And I'm sure if you asked him what's a major regret of his second season with the Broncos, it's just that he didn't dumb it down enough. Now, I've got no doubt when he did his presentation to the Broncos for the job, it was really impressive. And their white-collar interviewers, like Carl Morris, who's on so many boards, Darren Lockyer, um, Paul White, he, he razzled them and he dazzled them. When he left the room, they said, you feel like hiring him right now. But here's the thing. As, some, as a mate of mine said to me, who's on our rugby league desk, he said, that's good and well, but I don't need to know how he, about his flow charts or pie charts or Harvard University education. Nice guy that he is, dedicated coach that he is, my mate said, all I need to know is how does he connect with Joe Offerhand-Gowie? How does he connect with David Fafita? You know, there's just a, you need to be able to collect, connect with guys who think rugby league 101. So mm. that it's a, it's a dis, which Bennett has always done. Wayne Bennett. Yeah, Keep that's it simple. what he's renowned for, isn't it? The connect with the player. Uh, yeah, C- connect with the player. Keep it simple. Cody Walker loves him. You know, Dane Gay guy and these guys, they like him. You know, he, they, the Indigenous players always feel that Wayne's looking after them. And, and a lot of times he is. He's, he's genuine in that regard. Player, he, There's a feeling in rugby league that Wayne's game plans have got whiskers on them. They're a little bit old. But for player relations, he and Craig Bellamy are still the kings. Yeah, second to none, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Second to none. What are your thoughts on, or what's the whispers amongst the media fraternity about the top job, about the CEO job. Uh, I believe ben Greg's, it's yeah. going to be Benny. Well, I'm not certain it's going to be Benny, but I'm certain it should be Ben Iken. Just the fact that the first call he may have to make when he enters the job is whether to sack Anthony Seabold because the job starts in October. Now, you must have a football guy this time. You cannot wheel in a banker or a solicitor or, or someone like that with a 
wide portfolio of experience, but you need someone with big time footy credibility because they've got to smarten up that football department. And, and I think Ben Eichen is the man to do it. I've worked with him on shows. Matt, you know him far better than I do, and I'm sure we both agree that he's a very cerebral, deep-thinking, decent guy. Like, I haven't seen any, any flaw there that I worry about with him being the chief executive. He's the man for me. I, I, to, to, to the point, I have to say, if he doesn't get it, I, I really will be dis, disappointed, and I can't wait to shake the hand of the guy that gets it ahead of him because he will be a superstar. Yeah, that's what I think as well. I think that... You know, if he doesn't get the role, I think the the person who's going to be getting the role over the top of him is, like you say, is going to be phenomenal. So, yeah. And, um, and it's, it, Matt, it has to be a small list because the guy has to have rugby league credibility. Now, we know most people in rugby league, you know, and so he almost has to be a chief executive at another club. And I look through them and a lot of them don't impress me that much. So I don't rate any of them currently ahead of Ben Eichen. So... I hope he gets the job. And I think, as you mentioned, I think the, you know, Paul White's done a pretty good job in, in moving the club financially forward. But the biggest part of the business at the moment is the, is the football component that needs to be brought back around. And that certainly would be a strength of Ben's coming in. So anyway, we'll see. I'd like to say that my, one of my students is the CEO of the Brisbane Broncos. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Free tickets for games, mate. Love it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you never say no to the free ticket to the Broncos every now and then. That'd be that's always a always high on my list of things to do. Um, <laughs> now I've got one more question for you, and and once again, I thank you so much for your time tonight, Robert. It's been fantastic to chat, and I could chat for hours, I'm sure, about sport, um, which I'm sure you could too. But I've got one more question for you, which I ask everybody, and this might be an interesting one for you. Um, so everyone gets asked, this is a final question on the hard yards. And it's, if you could be any sports star, and I'll add in sports journalist commentator for you, for and live in their shoes for a single day on this earth, past or present, who would you choose? Um, I would have liked to have made one tour uh, a boat trip to England with the Ashes yeah, wow. uh, because they were a couple of months long. The blokes would get up in the morning. Uh, at night, they would put their ties on and go to dinner and they would just sit around chatting on the deck in the ocean breeze. They'd play deck games of tennis and coits. They <laughs> bonded for life and they bonded so well together. And, and I just feel that it was just, it had a, a romance to it. Bill Brown, the former Test Creedy, used to tell me what it was like on tour. And, you know, they always used to go to, you know, to, you know they'd have a party in someone's room. And uh, Don Bradman wouldn't come out with them, but he'd hear the voices and he'd rouse them the next day. But it all sounded like terrific fun. So <laughs> I, I, I was really internally fascinated by the people of that uh, era. Bradman, Stan McKay, Bill O'Reilly, Bill Brown. They, they were legends. I, as I close my eyes and think of them, um, they almost seem to have sepia tainted, you know, that, that sepia tinted the image. So they were great days in the great era. 
Wow, that is awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the things that you'd love someone, one of these geniuses of our world to be able to give us an opportunity to go back in time and live some of those experiences, but you've done a really good job painting a picture of it there. So thank you again for your time tonight. And I certainly wish you and your family all the very best in uh, what are still difficult and challenging times. We're pretty blessed up here in Queensland that it's not too bad at the moment, but um, certainly wish you and the, the family all the very best in the coming months as we continue to unravel everything that is the coronavirus. And um, let's hope you get to see a bit of cricket and ride a bit, bit of cricket over the coming months uh, heading into a summer. It's something that we, we probably haven't um, even given too much thought to yet, the possibility of cricket without fans and, and the like around the country. It's been my pleasure, Matt. I've loved it. And well done on all you've done for, for sport and for golf. You know, your uh, efforts to help Ben Ike and even my son Xavier learn the game is something we really cherish. And uh, you're a man of great humility. It's been my pleasure to, to be on your podcast and uh, look forward to seeing you out the driving range, hitting them, what, 280, 290, 310? <laughs> <laughs> That's ma that's maybe me closing my eyes and imagining that I'm Greg Norman or Tiger Woods or someone else. But yeah, no, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you again soon, Robert. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having us on.